Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 22 of the Crownsman podcast. We are here. And that was a little bit of work this morning. <laughs> yes, we ran into a couple of hiccups <laughs> this morning. A couple technical issues. I'm not sure what was going on. We took a week off last week. Maybe that's what it was. Never do that again. Those yeah. vacations that you plan, that's, that's <laughs> gone. <laughs> Wait, are you saying I can't go on vacation? No, vacations. <laughs> um, no so, uh, but we're back this yes. week. Everything's back to normal. Um, we're doing the show. And we're going to go down the environmental stream today and a little bit of the political stream. So that's going to be interesting. I'm sure we'll get some good feedback on that on this show. Um, Peter Cron is is in with us today. Hello, Peter. Hi, Jared and Scotty. Good morning. morning. Thanks for coming on here. Thank you. Yeah, nice to be here. You're uh, just quickly. You're you're actually running as a nominee for the Conservative Party, right? That's right. I'm running for the nomination in the federal district of North Vancouver. Right. But you're coming on this show uh, to you're you're going to talk a little bit about politics, but really we're going to dig into your background, what you've been involved because you've been an environmental enforcement officer. That's right for for quite a long time. So you've worked on uh, I think fracking, pipelines, mining, industry, forestry, forestry just yeah. on and on. So um, I I don't even know the questions I have so far because <laughs> they're just kind of <laughs> it just and we found out you have. Um, we actually have a little bit of a mutual connection because you've actually been on my father's I've mining. I've been on your father's mining. Yeah, Savannah equipment, uh, the mining equipment site. Yeah, they brought some old equipment and they had some. There was some product or something in this. So you had to go take a look I at had that. To take a look at it and do an inspection, <laughs> investigation. Yeah, that that happens in mining. Yeah. Yeah. used mining <laughs> equipment. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, right. before we get going any further, we yes. gotta do the. Uh, I, I'm getting that Shout look. Out. We better get the sponsors out there. Yes. I'm gonna get in trouble. Um, yeah, of course, you know, we, we can't do anything or at least the show without our sponsors. So, uh, first up, we've got Streamline. Streamline, they offer a complete package of fleet management solutions with three incredible products. Um, number one, NaviStream, that's their onboard intelligence and telematics system. Number two, NaviLink, their vehicle automation and IOT platform. And number three, Dagama, their dynamic transportation management system. And you can visit stti.com for the Streamline Advantage. Cool. Mm -hmm. And we also have Resource World. So we're brought to you by Resource World magazine. And they report on the business of mining, oil and gas, green technologies, and the events that affect these sectors. And you can catch their uh, May or sorry April, May issue and see all the latest news at resourceworld.com. Thank you, guys. You're welcome. Um, that streamline was actually on our show, and mm -hmm. uh, what they're doing is one of the things they're doing is tracking fuel consumption. Mm -hmm. So the companies are the fleet management for the the trucks, and so they're managing their f fuel consumption by you know accelerating. Right. So they've got all these sensors on that are that are telling even in real time. I think they're in real time. Um, what they're uh, if if their uh, their drivers are being a little heavy on the foot. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, I have that in a Volvo that my wife drives, and <laughs> you can monitor your the weight of your foot and the gas consumption that you. You use. didn't you didn't put it in the Volvo for her. No, it was <laughs> it was there. It was a <laughs> forward thinking feature. Okay, um, so I want to give a I want to give a quick profile on some of the projects that you've worked on, just right. to give people. And I said to you just before we went on air, I I've learned to not assume that people know what an environmental enforcement officer are. Um, I'm sure people have their guesses. Right. But I'd like to have a little bit of an understanding of s just some of the, an idea of some of the projects quickly mm -hmm. and what that title actually involves. All right. So my, my case is a little unique because I was a chemical environmental engineer when I started out, and I started off in the toxic chemicals management division. So my role was to look at how toxic chemicals are used in industry, how do they get out in the environment, and then the question was, well, what do we do about it? So when I started doing that, I said, well, we need to draft a regulation, and I did that, and then they said, well, we need to enforce that. And so I was at the inception of the enforcement division for Environment Canada. Oh. And so we had, you know, historically, uh, if you look at game officers in, in, in England, you know, where they were managing the wildlife for the mm -hmm. lords of the land, that history goes back hundreds of, if not a thousand years. But pollution officers only started in the late 1970s, and they really didn't have a concept of science and the law. So when I came in in the mid-80s, um, I had to start from scratch along with two or three other people, and we had to say, how do we take 
criminal evidence on the environmental side and bring it into the court. And so we developed the protocol for inspectors and I uh, helped with the development of legislation and eventually the criteria came in the legislation that gives enforcement officers the powers to do police type work. But the ev emphasis is on engineering and science. So it's a merging of science, engineering and the law and law enforcement. Mm. So that's how it started. I, I have to go back to it. There has not been pollution officers uh, there was none until 1970? Yeah, the concept under the Fisheries Act really started in about uh, 1974, 1972. So what, hap what happened in the 1940s, if, or is that the why? <laughs> there, there, was, there was very little done. There was very little history. There was very little protocol. The concept of, say, continuity of evidence, criminal law, was not really in place. So the stuff that I work under is under criminal law. So oh. that's the same standard as a murder case. Oh, oh wow. okay. And so we have to take all the training, working with prosecutors, and say, this is how you have to collect evidence. This is how you have to protect it. This is how you should present it. And in fact, the presentation part was very difficult because the law portion of the equation, which we'll talk about, didn't understand science or engineering. Right. So this was really on the forefront of original research and, and helping develop the protocol to create the modern enforcement uh, regulations and uh, the inspectors and officers. So when you got your start, was that was that a government project? You the you said they you started as a chemi chemical engineer, chemical right? Chemical engineer. So was that a government project to start? Yeah, there was a division called the Toxic Chemicals Group, and okay. basically it was involved in researching toxic chemicals. And it started out in the environment, and then they started finding these things, and they're going, well, where are these coming from? And we'll go through three case studies today that uh, illustrate how that process happened. Okay. Well, you said it's about criminal. Does that mean is, and I'm, I'm so far from a lawyer that, uh, forgive my questions, right. but I, my, my questions are probably similar to some of the ones you've run into when you yep. walk onto sites. Sure. <laughs> um, is intent, it, so now do you have to judge intent as yeah. well? Yeah. As opposed to an accident? Is there, there two different things? Well, there, yeah, there's a difference. And in fact, one of the first cases we worked on, it's the, the principle, legal principle of mens rea, which is intent, like a murder case. First degree was, you know, you intended to do this. You planned for it. There's mens rea is the legal term. And that's how the uh, regulations started out. We had to prove that the person intended to do something. Mm. But that changed to uh, a more standard view where it was uh, strict liability. If mm. you did the thing, you were potentially guilty. But you have to show that you had done everything to prevent the commission of the offense. And that's a principle called due diligence. So a person really tried their best and it still happened. And so now the law has changed where we have to prove the evidence, but we also look for evidence of due diligence. Because if the person actually tried to prevent the thing, then they wouldn't be guilty under the law. Mm. But the person that has to prove due diligence is the person charged. Oh, I see. Okay. I see. So, um, what was I going to ask? The what part of it is? F are you actually? How much of it is preventative? When you're when you're uh, uh, when you're an enforcement officer, right. how much of it is you're trying to get ahead of the problem as opposed to you're coming in um, after the potential crime? Mm -hmm. um, I, I didn't actually realize it would be under the criminal act yeah. so now we're talking about a potential crime um you know a police officer doesn't show up before the crime to say hey nobody argue right. here, here yeah. in this bar because yeah. so we don't want to fight to break out well yeah. i guess sometimes they do but um are you showing up before in some cases it is it an advisory part to yeah this? There, there can be that so when i did the research what we did is we developed you know what were the good practices let's pick industry x what's the good practices well if you're going to regulate industry X, you should have what we call a compliance promotion period, where you go to industry X, you've got the best ideas from the best operators in the industry, you've made it formal, and now you go back and you say, okay, industry association, let's train your industry mm -hmm. in what this regulation is going to entail. And by the way, the leaders in that industry have given us an idea of what the best technology is. Right. So we can have an educational compliance promotion part, and I can come into that part and say, this is what you should be doing. But on such and such a date, this regulation is going to be law, and now you have to be in compliance. And if you're not, we're going to come back and inspect. Right. And there's actually two parts to that. One is inspection, where we don't know that something has gone wrong, but the other one is investigation. And you can switch from inspection to investigation if you find uh, uh, an act in the process of happening. 
So it gets into a lot of different legal arguments as well. Right. These so these so they're you're actually working to to develop these regulatory outlines. You're actually working with uh, are, are they typically associations or actual companies that are are giving in their information of how they're they're. Uh, like how does that work that collaboration between industry and what the policies end up being well or the laws yeah typically and the first case we're going to talk about is the sawmill case so we'll mm. just sort of segue into that a little bit we found a problem with this chemical they're using in the fraser river and around pulp mills right in the fraser river we found it around sawmills and the pulp mills we found it around the pulp mills and so we did the original research to find out what was in the environment then i did the part of going on site looking at the process and evaluating every step of the process mm -hmm. to say, okay, here's where it's coming out. And then the next thing is, well, what do we do about that? So that was, okay, let's develop uh, a code of practice that these are good practices that would meet the intent of the regulation. Mm. And we got those ideas by working with the best people in the industry. They know how to do it, and they're often ahead of the regulation. So who would those people, like specifically, who would those people they be? They might be an individual company that has got, say, the most modern facility, mm. and in the forest sector, you know, it, it's, it's company-wide. They've got the most modern facility. They've worked out the pollution problems, but they have a lot of the rest of the industry is way behind and is polluting. So it can be a specific company, or it can be an industry association that has pulled their best people together. So you're you're actually seeing there are some companies that get out almost ahead of the oh. environmental mandates. Yes. So then they're actually upping those regulatory. Yeah, in a sense. In in fact, that's been my modus operandi is I try to get the best people in the industry, and and let's talk about the pulp and paper industry, which we're going to touch on. Mm -hmm. So what happened was. Uh, the environmental groups were protesting that these chemicals were showing up outside their facilities. So they literally blockaded some of the pulp mills. They went to Europe to try and shut down the market for their pulp. Mm. So what happened was I got together with a couple of industry executives and I got two senators out of Ottawa. We met in a hotel room in Vancouver. And the industry guys said, look, our companies are way ahead, but the rest of the guys are causing us to lose market share because they're polluting. Mm. We won't stand up in our industry association meetings and say we need more regulation because we're going to get crucified. Mm -hmm. But you guys, government, need to bring in some regulations so that those people will comply. That will raise the standard of the industry. Everybody will be on the economic playing field, level economic playing field. And so we discuss, okay, well, what is it to technology that you have? What are the processes? They told us, we got together, we drafted a regulation, and we, the industry across Canada agreed that within five years, they would implement those criteria. And so we said, okay, the regulation comes into effect here. Within five years, you have to have this and this technology in place, and after that, you could be subject to investigation and prosecution. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what happened except they changed and the pollutants went down 95 to 99%. Really? And there was no pollution tax, no pollution credit applied to it, like a carbon tax or carbon credit. It, it was, was just, just done through law enforcement. It was just done through law enforcement, working with the best in the industry. So all I've done is really cookie-cuttered that with every industry that I've worked with mm -hmm. and just simply repeat that process. Right. Now, do you see, even though there is no tax and things like that, though, do you still see an effect on how big of a hit? Now, if you're talking to the leaders in the industry, yeah. uh, my guess is that they would be fairly large companies, well-financed, yeah. good operations. Now, the small as you work your way down the chain, you get smaller companies, older equipment. Mm -hmm. you know, and so how much does that affect the smaller companies, even with those reg regulations? Did you, did you see any sort of firsthand where that affected them? Or oh, did yeah. It, yeah. Yeah, when I did, and, and again, we'll touch on that with, say, the heavy-duty wood treaters. There were some of the largest companies in the world in that business, and then we had literally Mon Pa operations here yeah. in D.C. So I sat down with them with a cup of coffee, and they said, look, we don't want to pollute. We don't want to have this happen. We want to stay in the industry, or we're going to shut down. Mm -hmm. And what do we need to do? So we outlined what they do, and you have a compliance promotion plan, and they implemented the changes. So it goes from the, the micro scale to the mega scale. Right, yeah. Is it ever is it ever different for a large, uh, as opposed to a mom and pop, or do the regulations, when it, I guess when it's law, it kind of sweeps across, yeah, right? Yeah, it, it, it affects all of them. 
But uh, those that have the greatest resources, we do expect the highest performance level. Of. Right, yeah. And so when we did investigate, we also investigated some of the biggest actors because you don't want to go after a little guy and say, oh, you're letting company, <laughs> big mega company X get away with it, right? Yeah. Because they've got the money and the lawyers. Right, yeah, yeah. I want to get into a little, actually, I'll let Gowdy uh, get into a little bit. I want to get into some of these projects for sure, but I also want to give a little context of sure. where you come from. And, and uh, I'm going to preface this with, um, in some sense, an environmentalist on one hand mm-hmm. and a conservative party. To me, that's not a strange thing. Right. But certainly to some people, that those two ideas seem like separate ideas. Right. And so I want to, uh, but I want to give some context um, from your background to sort of your journey to where you are sure. now. Okay. So um, with that, my biggest question is, can you tell us kind of where you started? Um, well... Okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I started in my dad's pickup. Uh, he uh, was an immigrant, and he was uh, a person who has was a tradesman, you know, worked plumbing and heating. And uh, as an immigrant family, we didn't have a lot of extra money or cash. So one of the ways to help the dinner table with six kids in the house was to go fishing. Oh. And, and so he would take me down to the Fraser River out in the Fraser Valley or to the creeks and taught me how to catch trout and everything like that. And then I began just wandering off into the bush along with my brothers. And so I just developed this love for environment. And I remember one day I, I, I really cared about salmon. So I rode my 10-speed down to the Vetter River, and uh, I started pulling garbage out of the, the river, and I found a $20 bill. And I go, that's the most money I've ever made working <laughs> in the environment. <laughs> and uh, that was, uh, you know, that I took that with me. And so I went to the BC Institute of Technology, and I started off in, in the chemical and metallurgical field because I love chemistry. And uh, we had a second year uh, option, which was either mining or environment or, you know, industry and stuff. And uh, environment was really at the very infancy at that time. And I remember having a conversation with the fellow who's going into mining. And he asked me, what are you going into? And I said, I'm going to go into environment. He says, well, there'll never be any jobs in that. Right. (laughs) 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 So from there, I went on uh, to uh, Trinity Western University. I took some undergrad stuff there. I went to Lakehead University in Thunder Bay, got my engineering degree. And at that time, there was only one environment course. It was very. There was only one. One. How many is there now? Oh, you can get (laughs) there's there's a spectrum of environmental engineering specialties now. Yeah. So then I did that. I worked in industry for a little while. Then I went back to uh, the University of British Columbia. I did pre-medicine. And from there, I, I, what I really benefited from that was learning the biology and how toxic chemicals actually work. Mm. So I was able to take that bo- broad spectrum of experience from being in industry, as well as the science and the engineering and the biology. And when you're working with toxic chemicals and how to protect the environment, having that knowledge and background is really, really critical. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of the summary of how I got into it. <laughs> um, what are the kind of uh, challenges that you've come across um, being so involved in, in, in environment? Well, the challenges are that the environment has always been tied to the economy. And as soon as you do something in the environmental field, and this little triangle that we're seeing back here is how I sort of lay it out. Scientists and engineers, we speak you know, our language. We understand each other and how we talk. And if we find a problem in the environment, we take it then to the legal forum. And the legal forum are largely judges and lawyers who don't have any science or engineering background. So we have to communicate with them. So communicating what we know to that corner of the triangle is a real challenge. Well, then if we take that and uh, prosecute, say, a company or an industry, we're bringing in the impact on the economy. And that I- it brings in the top of the triangle, which is the politicians. Mm-hmm. So anytime you impact the economy, judges, uh, sorry, uh, uh, employees, uh, impact on tourism, all that sort of thing, that brings in the politicians. And those people are also not necessarily well-versed in the science and the engineering. Mm-hmm. So most of my effort, when I do an investigation, I spend about 20% collecting the science and doing the engineering. The other 70 to 80% is actually communicating with those other two corners of the triangle. That's usually the biggest challenge. Wow, looking yeah. back at this, so that that must be quite the seventy percent. I I was watching, um, I was watching. It's actually I think it was the Joe Rogan podcast, and they had uh, he had an, a, a marine on there, and he was said uh, he said about five percent is combat, the rest is paperwork. Yeah, he said we send it. We send a. Uh, 
he said, we'll, we'll use, um, we'll do the slide presentation just like you have back there. And he right. said, and they'll send it back to us and say, the, uh, the landing where the helicopter is supposed to land for the, is uh, turned the wrong way. Yeah. So he said, then really? Okay. So we turn it back. Is it, is it a little bit like that? It is. Um, but you can get around stuff like that. Like, uh, I, we all probably grew up watching cartoons and I loved animation and making videos and stuff. And in one of my major cases where we had a massive spill, I realized that if I put this into the form of an animation, it would help the judge understand. Mm. But at that time, we just had the, the sheets of cellophane and you drew a drawing and you drew it. And so I was <laughs> flipping this around, <laughs> and, which is nothing compared to what we have now. So even my hobbies and that sort of thing, and when I speak with young people, I say, your interest in your hobbies can become part of your career. And in my case, I loved animation and it, it's a very powerful tool for helping communicate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and uh, I mean, you've, you've done so much. Um, uh, I, I was reading and you're part of uh, like Interpol, mm -hmm. Genesis Environmental Sciences. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of uh, what that or your... How your that came about? Yeah. Right. So uh, after work most days, uh, I would sit down and I'd write out some notes of what I'd learned that day because we had no training in how to do this work. There was no training program. So my notes turned into a textbook. And then the textbook turned into PowerPoints, and I created these modules. And then I began training because, uh, again, not every scientist knows what's required of the law. And when you're talking about criminal law. So having done that, I started doing training programs for enforcement agencies around the world, like in, in developing countries in particular, in Indonesia and in Thailand. And if you go over there, you really see what the impact on environment really is. Mm -hmm. And so when I took those... Uh, training programs, I got called from Ottawa saying Interpol is looking to put together a pollution crimes investigations manual for application around the world, especially for developing countries. So I went down to Denver to a meeting. We had 60 countries from around the world and particularly developing countries. And, and here's an example from, from Africa. They said, you know, we, we give our officers a bicycle, a notepad, and a pencil to go out and investigate a crime. That's all they had. Oh. And, and what they wanted to do was have a pollution crimes manual that would be able to teach them how to collect evidence and present mm -hmm. it in any court in the world. So from the 60 countries, we went down to about uh, 30, and then I had about 24 experts at very high levels, both in government and in science, from, and also from private practice. And my team was from both hemispheres. So I led them, I took the examples that I had in my training course, and we put them together into scenarios and developed over two years a manual that is now available in 194 countries around the world. Wow. Really? Yeah. Wow. So Interpol, what is their, what is their role? I don't know Inter much about Interpol. Yeah. Inter Interpol stands for International Police Organization. And what they are, they're actually an information brokerage. All the 194 countries have Interpol representatives. So just recently, you heard of the bombings in Sri Lanka. Mm -hmm. So what will happen is all the evidence that all of the enforcement agencies around the, no the world know will be funneled through Interpol to those agencies in Sri Lanka and help them figure that out. On the pollution crimes point of view, so say we have ocean dumping of hazardous waste. Someone has intelligence in one country and someone has intelligence in another country. It gets sent into Interpol, they coordinate it, and they send it back out to the agencies mm -hmm. around the world. So they developed a pollution crimes division, and that's very important, and it gets onto the topic of global warming. So I was brought in to help lead the team to help develop a protocol so that all these agencies around the world, when they got the information, could then go out and investigate, collect evidence to the criminal law standard, and prosecute in any court in the world. On a global scale. On a global scale. Wow. Wow. And so that and that was so that only started though. When did that start? Uh, I finished that project in 2014. So 2011, and I finished the project in 2014. So in 2000, that didn't exist. No, uh, it's hard to. Uh, yeah. Uh, especially in like my generation, you'd think no. I mean, that was no. I was an adult at no, that time. It's so it's that new. Yeah, it's kind of like being an explorer, actually. Yeah. Wow. You know, it's a lot of fun, but it's a lot of hard work. Yeah. And so were you. So now, were you working out of a, for that, are you going to different locations in that case? Yeah. Or, and then you're trying to collect a, 
you're seeing pattern like uh, I I'm well, just what trying to unpack what that actually yeah, is. <laughs> yeah, trying to arrange a conference call in two hemispheres, uh, <laughs> uh, twenty some time zones is is really challenging. So we would meet sometimes uh, in Thailand and Lyon, France, uh, and in Indonesia, and then I would operate out of my office and and communicate and coordinate and. Thankfully, with the internet and all the rest of it, this kind of thing is now possible. Yeah. And so I was, most of my time was spent here in, in Vancouver in the office, coordinating the project, getting the information together, putting the manual together, and then it goes to Interpol's head office in Lyon, France. They did the words, not the wordsmithing, but the layout and yeah. production, and then it gets disseminated worldwide via the Interpol network. Yeah. And then uh, what was the other one? You said Genesis? Genesis, yes. Genesis Environment. Environmental Sciences. Yeah. Yeah, that grew out of my note-taking and putting together the PowerPoints. So I would take leaves of absence to go overseas to train these government agencies. Mm. And so that was done as a private consultant. And oh. since I've retired, I've reactivated that. Oh, I see. Oh, yeah. okay. Oh, that's cool. Um, another, do you, uh, getting these regulations, um, you know, out there in that for environment, what's the biggest challenge you've, you've encountered with that? I'm sure. I'm sure it, it hasn't been easy. Uh, it is communicating again with senior managers within government. Mm -hmm. Actually, is the biggest one. Um, again, people come into the environment department, and a lot of times they don't have a science or engineering background. Mm -hmm. They they come from some administrative portion, and you have to understand the science, and you have to understand the law and the process of getting there. So a lot of times that is the most difficult issue. The people in industry, the especially the leaders in industry, they know what they have to do and they're in a lot of cases they're doing it. And then you have to try and bring those parties together. And, and it's just a management issue. It's, that's the, the toughest part. Yeah. Is there any, any, t any oh, how would I say this? Um, do you find it hard kind of once these regulations are in place um, for companies to, to follow the regulations? If the regulation is poorly written, mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, that's the other thing I do is I'll edit regulations. Uh, I've been the last one I was working on was the coal mining regulations under the Federal Fisheries Act. Mm -hmm. And so these were drafted by people in Ottawa that had never been to a coal mine, as well as lawyers that have never stepped out of the office. And I get this, and I go, yes, this is very nicely written, but you could not collect the evidence this way. Oh. And you could not okay. enforce the language. Because right? you're looking at it from a, cr from a criminal point of view, too, if it's written in a wrong in a wrong way yeah. it, it basically and you'll see even that in laws and anything where it's yeah. they just went th this way instead of that way and then yeah, the law doesn't or a specific example so we're going to collect this type of sample in this location i said well if you do that you're going to get interference from other locations and so you need right. to change the wording so it's that experience of being in the field that is so important yeah well um I wanted to go back, and we're going to go over to this for in a, se in a second. We'll bring that up on the screen sure. for everybody yeah. in, uh, in the in the post. But some of these questions that that Gowdy asked, I mean, I could, uh, I could. I'm going to preface this with a an ad that I saw for a company that was selling burgers, and their tagline was, "You won't believe you'd be you'll, you'll be surprised that it's them." And I didn't, and I and I didn't like that. Ad. And I kind of started the show with doing exactly what I disliked that I didn't want to do is saying a conservative and environmentalist. Yeah. Like it shouldn't match up right. when it absolutely should match up. Um, if you look at sort of conservative values, mm -hmm. it it shouldn't be a surprise to people. However, a lot of times it is. Right. Um, so I'm going to ask it uh, in a, a question I almost don't even want to ask. But how does an environmentalist, environmental scientist, end up in the conservative party. Right. Um, actually, being an engineer really helps with that. Mm. Because when I first day of engineering school, it was, the lecture was, an engineer is maximum utilization of available resources. And I'm going, okay. That doesn't mean consume all the resources. Mm -hmm. It means getting the maximum value out of it so that society right. benefits the most. Mm -hmm. Conservative, the root word is conserve. Yeah. which is to protect and use efficiently and to the best availability. And if you talk to conservatives, they hate waste, mm. like in any form, wasting money, wasting food, wasting resources and that sort of thing. So for me, it's just a natural thing, putting my engineering background to try and get the maximum value and not waste things. Mm -hmm. And so it's really just a matter, again, of communicating to people. And there's been a lot of miscommunication trying to paint conservatives as not caring about the environment. 
Yet in the last two regimes uh, that we had, um, we uh, set aside most of the parkland, more parkland than anyone else. Oh, really? And they supported the enforcement division more than anyone else. We didn't lose resources from the environmental pollution enforcement division. And, and again, it's just getting that message out. Yeah. What do you think it is? Oh, uh, you know, and I, you know, it's easy. Uh, I'm, I'm not in politics, um, right. really. So, you know, it's easy to say that somebody's been misrepresented. But usually, um, you know, I do, we, we work with uh, branding and things like that. And a lot of the onus it has to, we, we a lot of times are trying to get a company to say, no, this is, this is how people are perceiving you, right. but this is how you need to adjust. Where did that happen? Because you're right, a conservative, the very word, would think that you would go yeah. towards protecting everything so that you can then maximize its values. Yeah. Where did that Where did that go off? What, what happened? Well, <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to say. I mean, every group, no matter which political party, has mm. a spectrum of people. Right. And on some of them, they they looked at the economics and they wanted to conserve the economics and they only saw the environment as a cost. Mm, they yeah. didn't they didn't correlate to the benefit that the environment brings and the value that it brings and that how having a better environment really enhances life in total and actually makes you more profitable. So to give you a, a, a prime example, uh, when we prosecuted one mill, um, we I, I met the, the vice president a, a year or so later. Okay. He comes up to me across a, 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 the foyer of a hotel and starts wants to shake my hand. He says, thank you for prosecuting me. And I'm going, okay, that's not the normal <laughs> response that I would get. Would you mind <laughs> explaining? And he says, you know, after you prosecuted us, I can now go into the boardroom. And whenever I have an environmental problem, I can get the budget every time because I say, Peter Cron and the government's going to come and prosecute us if I don't get this money. Right. And he says, and now we're more profitable. And I go, okay, could you explain that? And he says, well, we started cleaning up our, our facility, and it made it a much more pleasant place to work. It was more helpful for the workers. Mm -hmm. And the workers saw we were doing something to protect the environment. So they were much more enthusiastic, and our absenteeism dropped off to almost nothing. Our productivity went up, mm -hmm. so we're more profitable. Yeah. <laughs> and so you have people in industry that may have a perspective that environment is a cost. And so that's where I think it kind of went off the rails. And you hear people saying, you know, drill, baby, drill, and all that sort of stuff. It's very aggressive. It's not really putting things into context. And right. we need to get our message out better. Yeah. And I think it's fun. And I think there's an irony to that, too, is a lot of that. Um, I mean, I, I know that some of the people that are uh, even on my Facebook that post the drill, baby, drill. Yeah. The irony of it is, um, to be honest, I hate fishing. I'm not that patient. <laughs> I'm not gonna. I can't do it. I've tried so many times. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I just. I. Li I like hunting and that because I can actually walk. Yeah. There you but go. Um, the, the, the people that are doing it also are in. A lot of them are working in these communities and Correct. and living. Uh, you're t uh, talking with one of your team, and he 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 said about uh, w work and live. Yeah. And that's most of these people. Most people don't just go to work, and then on the weekends they're going out, and you know the typical the Albertans with the big boat, you know. Well, and um, I love Albertans. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I. Uh, it amazes. On a quick side note, it absolutely amazes me that over the last few years there is some sort of tension between BC and Alberta. Oh yeah, it's unbelievable. But that's a whole other show. Yeah, <laughs> they're they're. Uh, I mean. What better neighbor to have two two titans of industry yeah. essentially? But anyway, but that those and I think there's some there was some sort of uh, something slipped where the guy that's out on this beautiful lake is now thinking that he's against the environment yeah. the environmental conserving the environment so that industry can still push forward. Somehow that 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 there's message got happened. Yeah. Yeah, I've run into that a lot. Um, people working in industry and they say, well, you know, the fish are still here. And I'm working on a case right now. Mm. Um, part of it is understanding the deep science. And when I deal with stuff, it's extremely toxic. Like I'm dealing with stuff in the part per billion range. So that's right. like an eyedropper drop in a thousand barrels of water will kill fish or 30 eyedropper drops. And a lot of people don't understand the subtlety and the power of, of chemistry in, in how it plays. And so they don't 
see it. It's like I have to make the invisible visible when I'm talking about that, which is mm -hmm. why I use the animation. Yeah. And so again, it's a very much an educational process. They're used to have working with the jobs. And I like to tell people, you know, originally we had to sort of cut s civilization out of the environment because it was just so big and there was so much of it and never seemed to be an end. Now we've come to the realization that we have to put the environment back into civilization. Mm. So if you go in North Vancouver and you walk down the street, you'll see that the storm drains are redesigned so that it flows into a place where there's trees and the water can settle yeah. out. So it's a learning process on those people as well. Right. Yeah. And and I guess for you as well, because it's been, I mean, it's, it's kind of new doing all this sort of stuff. Yep. So how much of it is you're learning something new and new scientists are coming in, I guess yep. from all over the world, yep. putting in ideas, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the fun part of it. And when I teach students, I say, you know, you have a process now of lifelong learning that's required of you. But for us as professional engineers, we have a role to mentor and teach those students as well. Yeah. And, and it's not just the students, but it's the general public. Yeah. So it's the other part of the equation I said, you know, this 80%, 70% is communication to all of those groups. Yeah, yeah. I want to go into this a little bit sure. more um, and, and talk about some of these projects. Um, okay. So... So this is, you kind of touched on this, but maybe just quickly, just so we'll, we'll bring it up on right. screen, this. Yeah, well, it, it hails back to the question, have, have you just started politics? And again, no, it's not. Because in summary, I'm in this corner of the triangle. I know the science. I know the engineering. I speak with those people all the time. We understand each other. Mm -hmm. But we have to take those principles and talk to the lawyers and judges who, right. for the most part, avoided science mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and that sort of thing. And so we have to work with them. And we have to understand what they require in terms of the law, like criminal law, continuity right. of evidence. And as I said, once we bring in the, uh, the regulation or we're prosecuting somebody and we're affecting their production or their economy, mm -hmm. that brings in the politicians. And so we have to communicate with those as well. Yeah. So a couple of the case studies that I've, I've worked on um, will illustrate that a little bit more. Okay, sure. Can we go to, is there another one? We can yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. I'll let you guide when we, when we go from one to the other. Sure. So this is, uh, can't fit it all on, on this screen, but hopefully it'll show up. So this well. is yeah. really an example of the pulp and paper industry. And what I illustrate here for my classmates uh, or the students that I'm working on is that industry, a uh, pulp and paper could be the only source of income in a town. Mm -hmm. But what it does is it produces a product. And we'll just use the example of toilet paper. It pays wages, it finances hospitals, roads, services, and you build a community. And everybody looks at that and that's great. They love that part of it. And they get a product to use. But the aspect of that was there was not enough environmental control. And at the bottom of this thing, you'll mm -hmm. see that there was this plume coming out of the pulp mills. And in, on average, it was 10 kilometers long at an average pulp mill. And it was full of things that would contaminate uh, the crabs, the fish, and the birds, and eventually were users of that. Mm -hmm. So the public, s and so we had to shut down a thousand square kilometers of BC coastline because of this. And the public said, well, oh, wait a minute, we got all these good things, but we also got that. Mm -hmm. And they said, well, we don't like that last part, so government, you have to do something. And that's where the politics and the regulations come in. Yeah. And so that's what I said. I met with the industry. We got together a regulation. And we said, okay, in five years, you've got to comply. So we found the problem with um, the water pollution. And then they said, oh, but that's going to drive up our costs. And the pulp mills were competing with New Zealand and the Scandinavian countries. And so if we implemented regs and more stringent things in Canada, we automatically affected their competitiveness around the world. Right. So again, the environment and the economy was absolutely essentially linked. Mm -hmm. So when we develop a regulation, we have to do a, what's called a regulatory impact analysis statement. So we consider all the aspects of the regulation, how it affects uh, industry, how it affects tourism, how it affects the social fabric, and try to find that balance to make sure that the industry can still survive, mm -hmm. provide the goods and services that we need, and stay competitive. Right, yeah. So this was an example, and so actually, this was actually the rough cost per ton. It had to be $30 a ton, and then there was two other problems, global warming and disposal waste. Well, mm -hmm. that increased the price to $90, and that affected their competitiveness. So then they found efficiencies, and eventually the price dropped down. But in things like working with Interpol, then you have to go to other countries and say, you guys can't get away with this because, right. you know, yeah. you're... Uh, undercutting the marketplace here and you're just polluting another part of the world. Right. So 
pollution, environment, the economy, they're all tied together. Right. I want to quickly ask something. The Because the, I, I hear, um, I've probably heard a, a million times about the pollution from things like a pulp mill mm -hmm. th and those kind of things. When you're polluting, and uh, this is a very layman question, right? but th when you're polluting things like the water from the pulp mill, what is the effects of those pollutants? Like what is the end result? What's happening to the fish? Yeah. What, what ends up Okay, well, let's on? just roll this up a little bit sure. more. So from the pulp mills, they had in their bleaching process, they were using chlorine, mm. all right? And they were getting wood chips from the sawmills, which had another chemical in it. When you put those two together, you had a chlorinated compound. So chlorine's really- This is the chemistry yeah, side. Yeah, the chemistry side of things. Yeah. And that made that chemical very durable. Mm. It just lasted long, it was nasty, <coughs> it would <coughs> kill things. But what it did, it, because of the, the carbon in it, it would absorb into the pancreas of the crab and the oils in the birds and the fish. Mm. So now they would load up with these chemicals in there. And of course, it wasn't good for people to eat. So we had to look at saying, how can we change the process to take those chemicals out and then still be able to harvest our fish and wildlife? Right. Wow. So that was, um, okay, let's go on to the next one. Sure. So what happened was in five years, actually in about seven years, we were able to recover a thousand square kilometers of BC coast back to fishing and f shellfish harvesting. So th the price went up because there was an additional cost. So they hadn't been taking the cost of the environment in the equation. Mm. They had material costs, labor costs, you know, financing costs. Now we have to fit in environmental costs. And it's kind of like having, you know, you've seen the pie charts with the little mm -hmm. wedges. Well, now you've got to hammer a wedge in. That's the environmental cost. And that puts pressure on all the other wedges. Yeah. And you got... And regardless of what's happening here, you've got all these other countries that are That's competing. Right. Yeah. That's Interpol. So what did you see? Did you see bills shut down because of that? I th well, there were two mills, and in this case, they actually passed a special regulation that gave those mills extra time. Mm. But they were actually so old and inefficient that they eventually shut down. Yeah, yeah. And that's just part of, you know, the renewal in any industry. And I guess that's, uh, that's uh, I mean, in, in, in any business, if you're not reinvesting, and right. it, it, it eventually things are going to change, yeah. you know. If you're, you know, manufacturing wagons, I always say there's probably one guy manufacturing wagons, <laughs> so it's probably doing really well. Yeah. <laughs> the only guy left. Um, all right, let's uh, roll on. So this just takes us through the third example, and eventually yeah. the price came up, went up to, say, $590 a ton, efficiencies, and dealt with it. So as we learn more about these problems, we have to work with the industry, with the commercial operations, but eventually you have to hold them accountable. Because the one thing the industry doesn't want to do is be on an unequal economic playing field with yeah. competitors in their own market. Mm -hmm. And that kind of speaks to the next thing that I'm going off where I show a, a bit of a bell curve of behavior. Sure, yeah. I remember seeing that. So we'll just let that roll out. So this is sort of a summary of the, of the three cases that we worked on. Okay. And very quickly, we'll just go on. This was the example of the pollution coming off of the the sawmills mm -hmm. and the wood. It was being treated by this chemical called pentachlorophenol. It was put on wet wood using a water solution, and it sometimes rains here in the lower mainland. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and and uh, that would wash off and go to the next slide. And uh, what would happen here is it would go, in this case, into the Fraser River. Now, I've just added a little bit of colorant in the dye there to show what would happen. And if you just scroll down a little bit more, actually, go the other way, go oh. down the other way. So this was rough cut lumber, two by fours. They sprayed it, put it out in the yard, and it would run off. Then mm. to get the two by four you get in the lumber yard, it's not actually two inches by four inches, it's a little smaller. Yeah. Those wood shavings went onto the barges, which went onto the pulp mills, which was then made into toilet paper. Mm. So you could see the path of that chemical right into the product that came into people's homes. Right. And so that's why we dealt with this industry and they had to make a complete switch. So the pulp and paper in an example, they would spend on average $20 million per mill to take out the equivalent of one sugar cube of this chemical every day. That's how expensive it was to deal with that problem. The sawmills on average spent about $10 million, right? So there's a cost and sometimes these chemicals are so powerful that you have to take these measures and that puts a hit on the industry. Yeah, no kidding. So how, it, so what was, so that was just factored into the cost or is there a, or do then, does that get, is there ways, is there ways it gets suggested 
do the leaders of the industries then come in and say, no, we can do it efficiently? Do they, like, yeah, ha what happens? That's what happened in that hotel room. We said, you guys know the best. There is this process. We'll try and make that as part of the regulation. Everybody gets five years because typically an industry takes about a year. Once you set what the boundary right. is, it takes about a year and a half to design. Then you have to do about a year or so of contracting, and then you need two, three years to get construction going. Right. So again, most people don't understand that when you're dealing with industry, industry needs a, a defined cycle, and they need to set their capital plans and everything like that. Yeah. And it takes five to seven years to make that change. Yeah. It's not just turn a switch, and yeah. and that concept is often lost on the general public and on people in government. Yeah. You said about the bell curve. What? Where is yeah, that? It's a little further down. Uh, but actually, we'll, we'll, we'll just summarize these sure. ones here. Yeah. And this is the aspect of how do you do in law enforcement. Mm -hmm. So these companies, a lot of times, just like when you're stealing a cookie from the cookie jar and your mom tells you, don't mm. take any more, <laughs> don't punish me, mom. I'll we do did this. not do that at <laughs> our house. <laughs> we'll do this voluntarily, <laughs> and then you go back and you take it. and you my, get uh, the my mom was a serious enforcement officer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, those kids grow up, and they occupy spaces in boardrooms, and they sometimes behave the same way. Yeah. And in the early history, this is going back in the early 90s, I actually documented how much pollution was coming off. So when this was the sawmill industry, it was 270 million cubic meters every year of this highly toxic stuff coming off. And they wanted to voluntarily comply. They absolutely resisted any regulation. So you can see the progress on the top. It's pretty much flat. Nothing mm -hmm. happened. So then we did inspections, and that's where we weren't prosecuting. We were going on site, mm -hmm. but they still weren't making enough. And we started investigations. But what actually happened was at this point, um, a tanker of this incredibly toxic chemical rolled over at one of these facilities, hit a 12-inch I-beam, split open, and 5,000 gallons went into the Fraser River. Mm. This was during the, the largest sockeye salmon run in 70 years. And Tom Sidden, the Minister of Fisheries, was coming out uh, to open up. 800 fishermen were going to go out on the Fraser River and catch sockeye salmon, which was going to go to the world market. I was writing the regulation at the time this happened. I got pulled off my desk and said, go out there and investigate. When I saw what happened, I phoned Tom Sidden on the airline as he's coming back, and I said, sir, you're not coming to open up the largest sockeye salmon run in 70 years and all the photo op that goes with it. You're shutting it down. Because we were now threatening the entire seafood supply from Canada because the East Coast muscle problem had happened, and now we had no way of testing for this chemical. So what year was this? Uh, this was in around 1990. Okay. And so Tom came out. He was furious at the provincial government because these industries had... 60% of government revenue. They had 60% of the taxes going into government revenue. Mm. So you can see there's a lot of leverage there and politics comes into play. Tom said, BC government, you are going to pass this regulation now because it was shorter in the provincial do it than do it federal. Yeah. And this is what happened. It dropped down to nothing. So within the five years, that industry responded. We got a 99% reduction. Wow. Wow. And Incredible. Yeah. And so we just went to the next, if you show the next graph, This is the one with the pulp and paper. So we took a different approach with the pulp and paper. They voluntarily came and said, we'll work with you doing a regulation. Mm -hmm. We know we're up here at this high point, yep. but you have to give us five years. And this is the progress that the industry made, and we right. never had to prosecute a single company. Not a single one. Not a single one. Really? Yeah. So that there must be then, like you mentioned, this associations get developed then to work with the company. So independent of the government, yep. there's – and these are – well, it's an industry association. So yeah. the Association of Pulp Paper Producers, the Association of Sawmills, of Heavy-Duty Wood Treaters, uh, Paints and Coatings, all yeah. these kinds of things. They all have their industry association. Right. And then they go and they they work with you and their companies. Yeah. To, yeah. If you're going to do it right, yeah. that's the way you should do it. Yeah. And not a single one over five, seven no. years? No. Not a single one needed to be prosecuted. Really? Wow. So this was where we actually made a federal regulation. And right. this applied completely across Canada. Mm. So this is an example of, say, with carbon issues right now. Yeah. We have done this a number of times. We had PCBs, which were toxic chemicals used in fluorescent lamp valves and transformers. We had a national regulation, and we applied it across Canada. So the province could pass a similar regulation that was just as stringent or more stringent. They couldn't go higher. So if you do the regulation right, you set the standard across Canada. That sets up the level playing field. Right. Both economically and technologically that an industry can then comply with. Right. And you have to give them the time to implement that. 
Right. That process is not really well understood. Right, yeah. So if we go down to the next one, this one is the heavy-duty wood treaters. And this one speaks to government resources as well. Because when I was managing the program, we only had so many investigators and inspectors and lawyers. So we worked on the first two industries that we just talked about. Mm -hmm. And the other industry said they were going to do stuff, but never did. Right. So we did the inspection program. At this point, I said, okay, next year we have an enforcement plan. We're going to go target this industry. That's what we did. We started inspection, and then we investigated and prosecuted the biggest one in that industry. We got a conviction, and like I said, I sat down with the, the Mon Paws afterwards, and they all said, yeah, you went after the big guys. We don't want to... We don't want to deal with you, so we're going to comply as well. Right. Five years, 99% reduction. Right. So I've just taken that model and applied it to virtually any other industry sector that I've worked with. Yeah. Let's get into this. Oh, oh, there was uh, yeah, how many more slides are there? One more slide. I think. <coughs> so I want to get into a couple of the, uh, I want to get into a couple of examples of the uh, like pipeline projects sure. and, and fracking sites. Fracking right. is a, a big thing I want to discuss. So, so this is really a graph of behavior. It's the cookie jar kind of behavior, right? Mm -hmm. This is the good group that we work with. They're way ahead. They don't even need regulation. Right. The bulk of them can be moved by inspections and the fact that the regulation is there. And then the rest are what I call the F group. It's about 10% or less. And in any case, we only have to prosecute one half to 1%. Of, of that group? No, of the whole of sector. The whole thing. Okay. In order to make the point that government had a regulation and was prepared to enforce it. Yeah. What do you think is the motivation in this bottom 10% though? What I is it... Uh, they don't have, they didn't reinvest in new equipment, so exactly. they're not able to. That is that the main? Yeah, yeah. That they're making profit. So this one, it would cost uh, $30 a ton and 1,000 tons a day. So $30,000 a day they were spending mm. on bid. The other side, nothing. So if you take 300 days of production, that's $9 million. So we were literally fining the best people for being in compliance. Yeah. $9 million. And we never got a $9 million fine. Yeah. That's part of the economic playing field that, people need to understand right and so you need to then decide you need you need to basically make sure you're not sort of punishing the best kid that's on the right. block for not being that much better you need to make sure you're going after right. the right problem that's yeah. right yeah what is what are some examples uh is that the last slide yep, yep. yep. can you give us some uh some examples uh fracking sure pipelines i mean uh, those are i mean to say those are hot topics would be right. an understatement <laughs> yeah and and uh, again we so, so someone like myself, um, you you end up in sort of both camps because fracking, okay, you want you want to get that, you want to get your product, your resources to market. That's right. You also don't like hearing the stories of these communities that are dealing with the environmental issues. That's of right. It. You want a pipeline, you really don't want to see a tanker, uh, you know, the pictures with you know, and the little ducks in the thing. Yep. So, what are a couple of examples of? of those projects that have, have went well, went bad, and how are they dealt with? All right. Let's start with the fracking one because okay. I designed an inspection program for that. It actually has never been implemented, but I designed it. And the way we went, we talked to the best in the industry. We went out and inspected the facilities. I drafted out the inspection protocol and a training program. Mm -hmm. And then we, would, we could go back and train the operators and say, this is how the best ideas are. This is where you could be in violation of the regulation. Yeah. Now, that was never implemented, and I won't go into why that was one, but that was what would happen. The other one is the topic of pipelines. Now, I've investigated a couple of pipeline ruptures, and the most famous one was the Pine River Pipeline in northeastern BC. It was mm -hmm. the largest inland oil spill in Canadian history and the most expensive. And what happened there was uh, the, s the company had just sold the pipeline at noon on the day. The new company had it for 10 hours, and there was an explosion, and the pipeline ruptured, and over almost 2,000 cubic meters of oil went into the Pine River and threatened the water supply of Chetland. So 20 kilometers of the river were sterilized. Cost over $32 million to clean up. They were charged. And the essence was they had the control system in place. The control operator that was there before noon was the same control operator afternoon. He had all the training and everything. And what often happens in these cases, although they're rare, there was human error. He didn't pay attention to his computer screens because he was so afraid of losing his job because of the transition and consolidation that he just kept hitting the pump button. And for three hours after it ruptured, it pumped all the oil into the Pine River. So 
there's no denying that these things can happen and that they happen uh, very infrequently. But then you look at the technology of putting it into a rail car, all right? A rail car, a tanker car, weighs about 29,000 kilograms. That's just the weight of the car. Then if you're going to move bitumen by uh, that method, you have to put it in, but you have to dilute it with about 30% of a lighter product. So you're adding the weight of the rail car and 30%, and now you're shipping that. It's literally a moving pipeline from Edmonton, 3,500 kilometers down to the Gulf Coast of Mexico, where it gets loaded onto a ship, gets sent to the mega refineries in Asia. They take the diluent out, and they may actually send it all the way back. So you're looking at the carbon cost of literally moving the pipeline 3,500 kilometers this way and 3,500 kilometers that way, plus shipping around the world. So it's a huge waste of energy. And so they're right that there's a big carbon footprint in that. So you have to look at that as a pipeline, which can be installed, monitored safely. And it's the industry's responsibility to use the best available technology. And things like that are common now, like drones, you can fly drones at a fraction of the cost to inspect things. Right. They're still going to happen. The industry also has to have the response mechanisms in place. So when I did that oil spill, what actually happened was I went up there. I had to drive 30-some hours to get to the spill site. And everybody was standing around. I'm going, Why are you, what are you waiting for? And they said, well, the official from the BC Oil and Gas Commission wanted to come down here personally and direct everything. So we just have to sit here and wait. I'm going, well, I happen to be a federal officer. I had powers under the Fisheries Act. I said, I can issue you a direction. What do you need? Well, we need gravel to build a bridge across. Where is it? It's over at the, at the uh, BC Highway's gravel pit. I said, go ahead, steal their gravel. You can do that. I have the authority to tell you to do that. As soon as I gave them the instructions, it was just amazing to see them come together mm. because they did not want to have an oil spill. No kidding. They did not want this you know, to happen. And so given the right direction, they can respond, but the key was they had the ability to respond. Right. Yeah. And it's the same thing here in the harbor. We have to have the industry properly trained, outfitted to be able to respond. We have to have the government properly resourced with knowledgeable inspectors and officers to go out and inspect, and if necessary, if there's a spill, collect the evidence and enforce it. You have to have those two parts. There's a question I've always wanted to ask on every time I've heard about an oil spill, and I think you maybe you're the, be the person that can actually answer this question for me. Can an oil spill be cleaned up? Partially. Partially. If anybody says they're going to clean it up, and this is the issue with bitumen. It's a very long-chain molecule. It's like, if you imagine black licorice, okay? Mm -hmm. It's maybe 100 carbon atoms long. And so it's almost the same white as water. So if you spill it, it's going to pick up a little bit of sediment or grit, and it's going to sink to the bottom. Oh, okay. And you won't be able to recover it. Anybody mm -hmm. that says you can, never happened. I, I, I worked on that in my engineering lab there in, in university, and I gummed up all the glassware with this stuff. So I, <laughs> <laughs> I know what it's like. Yeah. So the answer to that is you can do what's called an upgrader. And really, if you had a, a piece of licorice and a pair of scissors, it's, it's, a, it's a tower that cuts it into smaller pieces. Mm. So if you have eight carbons, that's like gasoline. If you have 12, that's into like jet fuel and stuff, or a little longer bunker C. Now those molecules are much smaller. Mm. They flow past each other better. You eliminate the need for putting diluent in, mm. and you put it in a pipeline which runs on pumps that are electrically powered. So you don't have diesel locomotives traveling 7,000 kilometers. You have electrical pumps moving this. Yeah. If it is spilled, it tends to float on the surface. And because it's smaller, ultraviolet light can actually break it down into smaller parts. Mm. Bacteria, because the molecule is smaller, can chew it up quicker. Mm. You will still have the oil sheen. You will still undoubtedly have birds getting oiled and seals and all that sort of stuff. But the ability to handle it is much, much better. The economic side of that is there's a tariff that you can put on shipping the oil. So the government can tariff that oil use that to develop their enforcement programs, but they can also use that revenue to sponsor alternative energy development mm -hmm. so that we have a much more diverse and robust energy system, and they can also use it for habitat enhancement, like mm -hmm. better funding of fish hatcheries so we can help produce more salmon that are available for the orcas to eat, restoring habitat so natural spawning can be done, even helping take out dams that are obstructing the flow. So right. people don't see that whole package. Right. And is it, and so what is, you know, to kind of, 
to kind of tie some of this together, um, we might have to get you back to cover more stuff because it's it's a huge topic yeah. that we're talking about. I mean, you just just the the, the 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 sawmills alone. I mean, you could just study that for one for one episode. Sure. And we probably wouldn't get into it uh, enough. Um, but where is sort of your what's sort of your goal? You know, aside aside from politics, because politics has a you, you don't really know one what's going to happen tomorrow or a year yep. from now. And yep. I mean, you you look over south of the border, you see that things. I mean, things can drastically that's right drastically shift and, and and it benefits some people and mm-hmm. it goes against other people's values and and that's but what is sort of if you could pick what direction should us uh, in your you're you're running federally yeah. as a country when it comes to industry and the environment where are we supposed to be going what what should what should be the end result in 20 years if you could pick it if i could pick it yeah we would have a national program right now that's dealing with climate change all right so we would have national standards that each industry has to perform to. And we've done that with the pulp and paper. So the example of the toilet roll is actually mm-hmm. very good. We were only allowing them so much pollution per ton of pulp. Yeah. Well, we can do the same thing. Only so much pollution per ton of oil produced or per ton of gas produced and that sort of thing. And then everybody's operating on the same playing field. So to get that transition, you need to work with the industry for a period of time. Well, I sat down with the executives from the uh, oil and gas industry climate change group. They have people dedicated to try and solve these problems. But they describe the regulatory regime in Canada as a dog's breakfast. That's the polite term that they mm-hmm. used. Okay, I'm kind of switching <laughs> words there. And what We it have was, to do that on this show. Yeah, but. and what it was doing was it was because of all these radical changes and, and Doug Ford came in and you know said, we're scrapping the tax. Well, that had a huge impact on the oil industry because mm-hmm. they were down one track and they thought they knew the rules. And then it completely switches, and they yeah. have to scramble to try and make up. It costs the industry time and money and human resources yeah. that they would normally want to d- apply to solving the problem. Right. So for me, the biggest challenge would be to say, okay, let's establish a national protocol. Let's get all the provinces on the same playing field. Let's establish rules that everybody understands and then work towards reducing the impact using the best available technology because ultimately we can't do better than the best technology we have. No. And, for example, people say, well, we're going to go electrical. And in British Columbia, if you took the natural gas that was being used and you convert it to electrical power, you would need six to seven Site C dams just to replace that. Mm-hmm. So I have to ask you, where are you going to put those six or seven dams? Yeah. The Fraser River and the Skeena. Yeah. Th- there's a huge environmental impact. And you need to take those simplistic concepts, work with the people, gain their confidence. The government has to gain the people's confidence yeah. that if they're going to deal with this, they deal with it in a serious manner, that it's fair and equitable, and that there is progress made. And until the government does that, there's not going to be public buy-in, and you're going to have this conflict that you see today. But what are you t- when you're talking about you put a, a national program together, yep. okay, it, are you talking, uh, and I wanted to clarify, are you talking about going through it in a, uh, you're talking about enforcement, law enforcement as opposed to tax? Is that? You start off with a regulation that everybody understands. Right. You help the industry comply with that regulation, and those that don't comply get prosecuted. So with the pipeline rupture, yeah, all of the industry was doing fine, but they violated the regulation, and therefore they were held accountable. And because they're held accountable, the other companies know, A, that they're going to be held accountable, and that someone's not going to get away with doing this and, and reaping a r- bigger profit. So when you look at something like the carbon tax, right. is that I- I- if you're making that choice, is that is that the right direction, or it, you're saying it should be going? It go, should go through enforcement, or the carbon tax should be about the third option played in, because all you've got right now is people just saying it's not working. I'm not perceiving it to work, and I don't want to see any reason for paying it. Mm-hmm. So it's a tool that can be used for smaller and smaller. Uh, I call them uh, polluters, right? Yeah. You would need to get the big polluters in line first, and if people see that that's happening you might have to just do an incremental change in tax, but you can also do carbon credits, and it's a little more complicated than we have time for today. Right, yeah. But you need to set up that level playing field. <laughs> I was watching uh, the, the uh, Golden Knights play San Jose. Wow. You know, and it was the Game 7. Hockey again. <laughs> yeah, it was Game <laughs> 7. And I thought, boy, if we played 
our NHL playoff game, the way we do the carbon tax game, this is what the NHL game would be like. The rules would be different on either end of the ice. Mm -hmm. The referees would never cross the center line, and the referees don't actually know the rules. And then every six months, you're going to charge more for admission. Yeah. And the more disorganized it is, the higher the price right. goes. And, and uh, so how many people will want to go see to play that, or pl pay to go see that game? Yeah. And that's exactly what's happening right now with the, the issue with regulating carbon. So we need to take it from a national perspective. And the advantage I have is I've been through this with so many different industry groups, but it takes discipline, it takes education. When I went to the national convention, I had this presentation, I'd sit down with MPs, uh, conservative MPs, and they're saying, look, Peter, I don't understand it as well as you do, but now that you've explained it, yeah. I want this to happen. Yeah. So it's a big educational job. So in the 20 years, there's a lot of education and implementation to do. Yeah. Peter, I think we're going to wrap the show. Thank you very much for coming on the show. Great. I mean, yeah. We really do appreciate it and taking your time. Uh, we're going to, we've got a couple sponsors that yep. we still need to. We're going to throw them out to the end. We'll figure out how to get them in properly. Yeah. <laughs> how many sponsors do we have? We the, only do. Thing, the only thing I'd like to say is yes, that of anybody that knows anyone in North Vancouver yeah. or that lives in North Vancouver, if they want to support me in running for the nomination, they have to sign up to become a member so they can come out to the nomination meeting and vote. I think this is going to be in about the first week in June, and there's a lot of work to do. And it's, uh, yeah, to vote for the for a nominee, you have to actually be a member That's of right. the Conservative Party. Right. So, um, and we, we are, uh, anybody who watches it, I mean, we, we support industry, um, but you're a guest on the show, and like any of our guests, we do have links on the website yes. and right. everything like that, so you will be able to... They will be able to connect with you. Sure. Um, and um, I'm sure there's some contact info if people have questions and all that sort of thing. So, yeah. yeah thank you. Yes. And we do have more sponsors. So They're going to be mad at, uh, mad at us. Ooh, I forgot about that. <laughs> 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 it's okay. They'll show up at the bottom anyway. <laughs> um, so we've got a structural geology and mining course. Um, this is put on by Sean Daly, who has a Bachelor of Science in Geology, a Master's of Engineering in Mining and Engineering. And the purpose of this course is to learn practical aspects of the, sorry, of the relationship between structural geology and mining, um, with an emphasis on open pit. The course starts May 6th, so it's coming up real quick. You can register by emailing peter.daily at hotmail.ca or follow the link in the description below. Perfect. Okay. Uh, we also have Savannah Equipment. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, which we have mentioned um, throughout the show. Uh, if you need anything from slurry pumps to jaw crushers to ball mills to conveyors, go to Leader in Used Mining Equipment. That's Savannah Equipment, and you can visit them at SavannahEquipment.com where you will find more equipment every day and electrical as well. Oh. Um, yes, and we also have Power Zone. So they are, um, actually, sorry, when you need a specialist, specialized pump for any type of fluid handling or dewatering, then you'll want to have your pump designed by PowerZone Equipment. And you can visit them at PowerZone.com, where you will find thousands of new and rebuilt pumps, motors, and engines. Perfect. Perfect. Well. Um, and us, I'll, I'll do a little shout-out for us. Oh, yeah, if you want to become a sponsor or be a guest on the show, Remember, you can email us at info at crownsman, uh, sorry, info at crownsman.com, or you can connect with us through Instagram, anywhere, um, at crownsman Facebook. P, Facebook, everywhere. Um, yeah. yeah. Okay. I think, is that it? Thanks for watching the show. We had a, a little bit of a strange morning this we morning. We did, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what was going on, <laughs> but... Uh, I certainly, I know for me, um, I'll be watching the show again because there's a lot of a lot of things that uh, I just haven't had a chance to discuss right. with anybody that's really, you end up sitting, uh, I think the the term coined right now is echo chamber. Right. That you just sit around with the same, so I'm talking to people that don't know any more than me <laughs> about the environment and <laughs> we're just bouncing stuff off each other. Right. So it was really good to have you in here, Peter. It. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah. And I appreciate Thank you. it. you. Okay. All right. Follow the show. Watch us next week. We've got, uh, we're going to be talking pipelines next week. So yes. we're going to get really into it. Okay. Yes. Thank you very much for watching, everybody. Thank you. Bye.